Do you know who you are? That is the key question I'd like for us to think about today. Do you know who you are? Do you know who we are? Last year, I was able to read a book called The Truest Thing About You by a pastor in San Francisco. It is a very easy, simple read. I have one copy here. I have four more on the back table. If this concept and discussion from today's message is something you want to think through further, I have five books to give away for free if you will read them, and especially if you will discuss them with other people. The book is asking simply, who are you? What is your identity? And there are so many helpful little illustrations or things in it. One of them reads this way. Identity drives motivation. Motivation drives action. And action will drive results. For example, if someone is speeding past us on the highway 90 miles an hour, odds are we will not chase them down and issue them a ticket. Our identity does not say, I am a police officer. So we have no motivation to act. A police officer, on the other hand, does have that identity and therefore has the motivation to take action to chase down the speeder and get the result of issuing a ticket. Every action we take in life has a sense of identity behind it. How we see ourselves matters. So who is that? What is the truest thing about you? What part of you is unchangeable? Who are you? Are you a mom? A dad? A child of divorce? A business owner? A freelancer? Male? Female? Black? White? Introvert? Extrovert? A person who refuses any labels whatsoever? You're gay? You're straight? You're a success? You're a failure? Someone who never lived up to other people's expectations? Someone that no one ever believed in? Maybe you control your own destiny, or maybe you cannot seem to escape the labels other people give you. Unique among seven billion other options, you are you. But who is that? What does it mean to be you? And what if we don't like that answer? I don't think we have midlife crises anymore. We live in a perpetual crisis. Perpetual crisis of identity, and therefore, the text of scripture that I'm about to read from Jesus' words himself describing who you are, who we are, could not be more relevant in my mind. Every action, according to this author, and I don't think he's wrong, will flow out of your identity. Everything you think, everything you say, everything you do, it's going to have some core pointing back to who you are and, as Jesus says, every word that comes out flows out of the mouth of somebody's heart, who you are. So let's read this text of Scripture. Matthew chapter 5 can be found on page 810 as we continue making our way through Matthew's gospel. Turn with me there. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 in what I will call a continued introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we saw what is often called the Beatitudes, the Latin phrase for these words, blessing, as you'll notice in the first 11 verses, they all begin with the word blessed, or at least from verse 3 down. 
And then right after verse 12, as we left off last week, the thought continues, the introduction continues, as we'll see. Look at verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This passage of Scripture, I think, is a lot like going into a swimming pool or maybe a lake or the ocean. You start going your toes into the shallow end, and it seems pretty straightforward and simple enough, but then you start asking some questions. And the more questions you ask, the more you think, the more you read it again, the more you realize I'm in over my head, and I'm in the deep end, and the water's over top. It is that way probably with most of Scripture, by the way. But that was the image that came to my mind this week as I thought about it. So I want to ask three questions that I think will take you deeper and deeper into this text. These three questions will hopefully help us realize that there is a simplicity on the surface, but a depth as the depths of the ocean. First question, who? Second question, what? Third question, how? Who, what, and how? We'll try and keep it simple but hopefully we will plummet down to the depths of these waters. Who? Who is Jesus talking about in this passage? One well, verse 13 and 14, it should be clear. You are. So who is you are? Who is he talking about that is you are? It should put our eyes back up to verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Question, who's the them that he is teaching? So we know that the disciples are closely around him, but we also know that there are crowds. So my question is, do the crowds hear Jesus' words? Is he talking to them as well, or is he only talking to the disciples? Turn over your Bible to a couple pages, to Matthew chapter 7, and look at the very end of the sermon. This is again why last week I said that the frame of the context that's at the end and the beginning is important. Look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. I think that should answer our question, shouldn't it? Who's astonished at the teaching? Who's hearing the teaching? Only the disciples or the disciples plus the crowds? Answer, disciple plus the crowds. So therefore, who is the you that he's talking to? Well, I think the you is anybody that is hearing his words and then doing them. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7, if you're still there. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds 
followed him. It's people who hear God's words, put them into action, and follow him. In other words, disciples, but not limited to the 12 disciples or the few that Jesus chose. If you look your eyes back up to chapter 4, you'll notice that Jesus called his first disciples, starting in verse 18 of chapter 4. He called Simon, who is Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And then later on, he would call James, and then his brother John. And then immediately in verse 22, they left the boat and they followed him. Same phrase, following Jesus is described by these certain men that he has selected. And then also people from the crowds who heard his teaching were astonished by it and started following Jesus. So who is the you are? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Disciples and followers of Jesus. Also notice that who these people in the crowds are. We saw this last week, but it's worth mentioning again because of the question. Verse 23, Jesus is going through Galilee, and there's people from all over the place. You'll notice by the end of verse 25 where they're from, but notice that they're sick, they're diseased, they're in pain, they're demon-possessed, they're epileptics, they're paralytics. So what kind of crowds are these people? It would be people that are poor, people who are seen as outcasts, people who are not the high and mighty in our societies today nor then. So who is the you are? Fishermen? Diseased people who have just been healed? Poor people? Did you notice any kings or queens? Did you notice any royal elite No, he doesn't say Jerusalem is a city on a hill, does he? You are the city on the hill. There, I think, are some subversive, undermining words here that he is saying, oh, you all think Jerusalem's the city on the hill where that temple is? You are the city on the hill. Notice he doesn't say that Israel is the salt of the earth. No, you, this crowd of people that would have been rejected and seen as outcasts and unclean, you are the salt. He does not say the Pharisees, the religious elite, are the light of the world, and they are going to show the world and all the Gentile nations how to live. He's saying, no, you. You everyday, ordinary people who are following Jesus. You. And really, it's you in the plural. If you read this in its original language, sometimes we miss that in our English. I just really wish one day an English translation will come out with like a southern version if you know what I mean? So instead, here it would say, y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Jesus is not talking to you individually. Who are you? Well, if this is you in the text, it's not just you individually. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, you might be as an individual, but it's us. It's we. We are a part of a community. We are part of a family, a bigger body. And that's who Jesus is talking to, a collective group of people. Who is Jesus talking to? Look at verses 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. Now let me do that one more time so you don't miss this, because this is an important connection if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's a different personal pronoun. It's theirs and 
third person. Here we get second person, plural. And it happens not in our text in verse 13, but it happens in the Beatitudes. In other words, I think there is a link describing the same people or the salt of the earth or the people who are 10, 11, and 12. So blessed are you when others revile y'all, if you want to put it that way, and persecute y'all and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Who is Jesus talking to? People who are following him, hear his teaching, and eventually most of whom will be persecuted, reviled, and suffer for his namesake. People who were suffering and who will suffer again some more. That's who he's talking about that is the salt of the earth. And in part, might I throw in, their enduring suffering for Jesus' namesake will be a big part of how they will show good deeds to the glory of the Father and be salty and to be light to the nations. Or as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, was just read to us from Mark. How, how is this not in Peter's mind when he's giving this letter to this, these churches? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Doesn't that sound really familiar to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? You're to live amongst the Gentiles, the world, the nations. Same, similar concept of what Jesus is saying. You're to live in an honorable way so that they will see your good deeds. Same phrase. They will give glory to the Father in heaven. Same concept and idea. But they will also do what? Speak against you as evil doers. Wait, wait, wait. Who are these people that Jesus is talking about? Are they evil doers? Or are they really good, kind-hearted do-gooders? Which one? Followers of Jesus are both in the eyes of the world. Followers of Jesus in the world's eyes will be seen as evildoers, and they will be seen as wonderful contributors to society to whom they praise and love and delight. Let me put it in other words. Followers of Jesus, who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about people who do not fit into our nice, tidy categories. Who's the you are? People that the world hates. People that the world loves. Are followers of Jesus, are they Republicans or are they Democrats? Well, some of you in this room might fit in one of those categories or another. But the church at large does not nicely fit into our political category. Are followers of Jesus respectful, prayerful, honorable to human authorities like police officers? Or are they followers of Jesus more like the advocates of injustice that have been done against minorities, especially the African American community, and have a genuine love for all races and ethnicities because the UR is people from all races and ethnicities? Which, which one is it? Because I think today we just read, you're to be honorable to all the human institutions and authorities from 1 Peter 2. Are we supposed to be that way toward the police? Or are we supposed to be Black Lives Matter? Wh which one is it? Why, why do we have to choose, friends? Christians do not fit nicely into these categories, and nor do we want to post on Facebook or blast on Twitter or in our conversations act like we're siding with one political agenda or another. Jesus Christ is our king if we are Christians. 
He is the one we advocate for, not one particular political party. And there will be times, my friends, where conservative Republicans will do things in the name of Jesus that do not align with Jesus. And Democrats will say things and do things in the name of Jesus that do not align with Jesus. And there will be police officers who think that they are doing the right thing and it is dishonorable. And there will be African Americans who do not respect and honor the authorities and this does not commend the way of Jesus. And so on and so on we could go, right? Should I bring up any more controversial issues? Are followers of Jesus people who care about women and women's rights and speak up for the women of this world and care about their needs and health? Or do we only care about the unborn and speak up for the rights of those who cannot speak in the womb? We do not fit nicely into categories. The world will hate some of the things you are for and they will love some of the things you are for. The world will hate some of the things that you are against and the world will love some of the things you are against. This is who followers of Jesus have always been. Who is Jesus talking about? Do you get the point? A different kind of people, a different kind of human, not a worldly human, not a human that is just looking for a little improvement of their current human state and society, but rather a radically different definition of humanity altogether. Not Republican or Democrat, not white versus black, not women's rights versus abortion rights and the unborn, but rather the way of Jesus, fully bowing down and submitting to our King. If we're to be true salt and light in the world, then the world will struggle to know what to do with us. Man, we, we like these Christians. All the way that they care for the poor and improve our society and help the schools and give and serve of their time and lay down their lives and sacrifice for other people. Do you realize how many hospitals that you go to and attend were started and are run by people who are Christians? I was just in one last week. My wife had back surgery. Many of you know this. Do you know that that hospital, there's prayers going over the intercom and there's people that are running it that are from Christian this is institutions. That, that's been a norm. Do you realize that if Christians were to get wiped off of the face of the earth, so many people would be like, that would be awful. Society would be in a terrible place. But at the same time, oh man, I don't like those Christians. I don't like those things that they stand for. I don't like their Jesus. I don't like their social views. I don't like this or that. Oh, they're trying to stop us in our progressive agendas. For example, I have no reason to promote this particular company, but Chick-fil-A is a well-known Christian organization that was started by a Christian man. In the New Yorker this week, there was a, a paper that was written on Chick-fil-A establishing itself in the heart of New York City. Ooh. Listen to what the New Yorker said. We have to agree that they have donated thousands of pounds of food to the New York Common Pantry and, and and, and essentially praise them for the expansion of them becoming the third largest, fastest food chain. It's created so many jobs for our economy. However, however, hypocrisy is baked or fried into every consumer experience. That unbridled corporate power makes it impossible to bring your wallet in line with your morals. Still, there's something especially distasteful about Chick-fil-A. Read the article. Look it up. The New Yorker. Chick-fil-A in New York City. 
you'll see they don't know what to do. Oh, they're donating all of these food to the food pantry. It's creating jobs. But I, I, we, we can't praise Chick-fil-A. This is a good illustration of what the world constantly is doing with Christians who are salt and light. They, they don't know what to make of them. Do not fit yourself in these categories if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus. You won't fit. You'll be hated and you'll be praised in the same breath by the same people. Don't live for the praise of men. Matthew chapter 6 is going to get to that point quite clearly. Do not do your religious deeds for the praise and applause of men so that your righteousness will be seen. That's your reward. You will not get a reward from your Father who is in heaven. So why is it that followers of Jesus are both praised and hated in the same breath by the same people. Why? That brings us to our second question. Because they're salty, because they're light, because they're a city on a hill. So what does that mean? Who is Jesus talking to? That was the first question. He's talking to followers of Jesus who hear Jesus' words and do them, and they do not fit into human categories. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean by salt and light? And this is especially true of our swimming pool illustration. You start thinking about salt and light, and you're like, yeah, I know what salt is. I know what light is. Why do I need a pastor to sit me down and teach me about salt and light? What is salt, guys? Do you know what salt is? Do you know what light is? Yeah, we know. But start asking more questions, and you might find yourself in the deep end. For example, how was salt used in the Old Testament or by Jesus? Or in the New Testament by, the, by other authors? How is salt used in the ancient world or in the Middle East even today? And you start doing some research. You start digging through your Bible. You start digging around and doing some studying. And you find out that there's at least 12 different options for how we could just take the one metaphor, salt. Was it a flavor added onto food to make your food taste better? Certainly was used in that way. Doesn't Jesus seem to be using it in terms of its taste? But if salt has lost its taste, oh, so that's it. It's just food. It just flavors your food a little bit. You know, I eat some broccoli at home, and it's just so bland. I need a little salt on it. That's oh, better. That's what he means. Salt. We all know what salt is. Or was it a preservative because they did not own refrigerators and electricity, and therefore if you had cold meat and you would like it to not get spoiled, you would just drench it in salt? That was one of its most common uses. Oh, okay, so it's not just a little flavor. It's a preservative. See, Jesus is saying that the world is decaying. But you, church, you followers of Jesus, you are to preserve and bring life to this decaying world so it doesn't spoil. So, so which one is it? Or you just keep going and you get further down and you realize that salt was put on animal sacrifices. Maybe there's something about you are now the sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to God because now there's no longer a temple. You are the temple and now the salt of the earth means that you are that pleasing sacrifice that's like a tasting aroma to God. Or you would look and study that Salt was often used in covenant ceremonies. You say, oh, so Jesus is talking about you are the salt. You are the new covenant, that the old covenant is, is done and it's just trampled all over. We don't need the new co old covenant anymore. We, we have a new covenant, and that's what he's talking about. Or there's another place where it's used as manure, and on and on it goes. Salt of the earth. Okay, which one do we choose? 
And then you ask the, the chemist question, for those of you that are into science, some of you are struggling right now. You're like, this is why I don't trust the Bible. You just don't know. How foolish is Jesus? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And you're like, salt cannot lose its salt. That's impossible. It's a chemical that doesn't break down. It's like one of the most solid minerals that we have. Doesn't Jesus know his periodic table? Apparently not. Oh, this old book, let's just get rid of it. So what do we do with that? Oh, now we've got all kinds of issues and questions. Some have suggested that salt of the earth is actually the phrase, and it is actually this phrase, salt of the land. And if you're a Jewish person and you hear you're the salt of the land and the land of promise, that's probably a Jewish reference, but then light of the world is the word normally used with Gentiles. So maybe he means you're supposed to be the salt of the land of Israel, but you're to be the light to the Gentiles. Well, that sounds nice. Is that true, though? Is that, is that what Jesus is saying? Others have suggested that salt is normally going to be on the ground or in low places, but light is up in the sky and up high, and therefore you have salt on the ground and you have light in the sky, and that reminds us of Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham, that there's going to be as number of descendants as the, the sand on the, the, the ground and as the lights in the skies. So yeah, maybe this is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. You are the sons of Abraham. Are you feeling like you're in the deep end yet? I'm, I'm just trying to help you empathize with preachers so that way you know, oh, okay. Like there's more to this than, yeah, salt, light. What do we do? Let's just look at the text again. I'm going to read it again carefully and slowly and see if you can see some simple, obvious points. Just right here in the text. You don't need to get dictionaries and study ancient uses of salt and light and whatever else. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me give two simple suggestions for how to read this text. What is Jesus saying? What is the metaphor of salt and light? I think that both salt and light are being used to make one point. So first look at the salt point. Flavorless salt is useless and trampled upon. It's not useful. It's not good for anything. Second point. Second illustration. Same point. Light that is covered up and hidden is useless. And cities on a hill cannot be hidden. So the, the point here seems to be about usefulness. About its purpose. And with that, I would say that when you add salt to any of the things we discussed, it makes a difference. If you add salt to food, it becomes flavorful. If you add salt to decaying meats, it becomes preserved. If you add it to manure, the manure becomes more balanced. And never any experience of this. This is just me reading 
in books. You add salt to the manure and it helps the balance of chemicals so that way the manure works better and longer and whatever else. In the same way, let your light shine. In the same way, be useful. Be a blessing to the land and the earth. So I think the phrase that's really important here is in the same way, meaning that there's two illustrations, salt and light. And light is being used in two different ways as well. So light as a city on a hill and light as a candle or lamp that is being lit. But it's salt and light in the same way as all of that I just said, shine your light. In the same way, you be useful. I think that's the big takeaway, that we should just not get worried in the deep end. Like, here's, here's your raft to help get you through those deep waters. Be useful. No, it's, it's better than that. It's, it's good works. It's you are useful. That's what Jesus means. This phrase, good works, is the same cognate word of righteousness, to have righteous living. And if you're asking, well, what kind of good works does Jesus mean? This is the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. Keep reading. Come back in the following weeks. Read it later today, and you will see he will explain exactly the kind of works that he means. He means the way you deal with your anger, the way you deal with others in your relationships and reconciliation. He means lust in your heart and coveting. He means the way we deal with our marriages and divorce. He means the way we take oaths and promises and what we say with our words and whether we can be trusted. He means how we treat our enemies and our friends and our family. He means how you pray, how you fast, what you do with your money, what you think about your material possessions, whether or not you judge other people. That's what he means by good works. He's going to define it the whole rest of the sermon. This is the introduction. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So shine your light so that your good deeds will be seen in the world and on the earth and people will give glory to the Father in heaven. So who's Jesus talking about? Followers of Jesus that the world has no category for? What is he talking about? Good works. The good works of following the teaching of Jesus given here in the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings and letting those good works be a light and a salt that is useful to the world. Do you all object? Now, you might. When you keep coming, you might object. But in general, don't you hear the teaching of Jesus and say, yeah, that would be good for the world. It would be good if there was an increasing number of people who did not want to use anger and hatred in their dealings with one another, but forgiveness and reconciliation and love. It would be good for the world if marriages did not crumble so easily. And when we get to that divorce section, you're going to realize that women are seen as valuable and not going to be exploited and exposed. That is much more than just marriage and divorce. It is so much about how you view women in society and not making it easy for men to just use women however they please. Oh, I don't like her. Let's get another woman. Well, what does that do to the one you just left? It's oppressive to women. Anybody opposed to that? Or you're like, no, that would be a beautiful vision for the world. What if we didn't oppress women that way? What if men saw them with dignity and value the way God made them in his image? What if they weren't so selfish with the way they dealt with their marriages, but served their wives like Jesus served the church? 
And so those are the weeks to come. That's what he's talking about. It's a beautiful picture. And he's talking about the people who hear his words and do it. That's who. And it won't make sense to the world. But let's ask the last question. How? How does this work? How does this happen that you and I can become salt and light? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you, you don't normally listen to the teachings of Jesus, maybe you don't normally read a Bible, you're not familiar with them, so you're like an outsider looking in. I just want to again say I'm, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome. We want to be a place that's warm and welcoming to all kinds of people in this church. But this point in particular is going to be relevant not only for the Christians in the room, but especially you if you're today here as a non-Christian. How does this work? How does this happen? How do we believe that people in this room can become salty and light in a way that's good for the world? And let's read this very carefully and make sure we don't miss it. Does Jesus, look down at the text, does Jesus say, be salt, be light in the command form? Is that all this is? Is this just one of those Oh, you know, Jesus is a really good teacher. He's got some good morals, and he's got some cool illustrations. You know, people liked him a lot. He's a likable guy. Be salty. Be light. He, he just, here's some good things to do. Take it or leave it. You can just take it or leave it. You know, if you think that this vision is good, you should be that way and try your hardest and best to be more like Jesus. Friends, that's not what we've read in this text. Jesus does not say, be salty. Or be more shiny. He says you are. You are salt. You are light. And that, my friends, makes all of the difference. To see this observation. For in other words, the Bible's message does not tell us, well, you're not very good at living as humans, so here's a list of commands. Try harder. You do really well. Well, then I'll be happy with you, and you can come to heaven someday. For those of you that don't obey these commands, you don't follow the rules very well, well, sorry, hell for you. So many people think that's what the Bible's about, right? That's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of Jesus. Let me give you an example. Last week, I said that the Sermon on the Mount should be seen as a parallel to the teachings of Exodus and Moses. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, you can look down and see Matthew 5, verse 1, where is Jesus when he's teaching? He's on a mount, on a hill. And he's going to give some commands. And he's then in chapter 8, verse 1, if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, a couple pages over, you'll see he comes down the mount. And if you read Exodus, you'll see that Exodus in chapter 19 and 20 is a very helpful parallel to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You should be seeing Jesus as replicating the teaching of Exodus in Moses. He is, in other words, the new Moses. Now, the reason I point that out isn't just because it's a cool, fun fact. Rather, the same pattern that you see with Moses is the pattern that you should see with Jesus. What was the pattern with Moses then? Read Exodus 19 sometime, and you will see the same concept I'm teaching right now. You are kings and priests to the nations. Question. Did God save the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt before or after the Ten Commandments came? So the saving part, by the way, if you want to just follow chronologically, 
The saving part came in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Exodus. The Ten Commandments come in Exodus 19 and 20. So which happened first? The saving part. Does God save people after they get the commands and after they obey God? Or has God always, throughout history, given, this is who you are, now obey? You are kings and priests, Israel. Therefore, because I have saved you. One of the things I love asking people is, you all know the Ten Commandments? Even people that don't really know the Bible. Yeah, I know the Ten Commandments. All right. How's the Ten Commandments begin? And even people that don't know the Bible that well, they might know that the Ten Commandments, are like, oh, it begins with, you shall have no other gods before me. And I go, wrong. You know, I try and be nice about it, but... No, wrong. It does not begin that way. And it's so easy for us to think, oh, that's what God's like. God is just the big commander up there, and he just commands things. He just got rules. It's all about rules. Ten commandments begin this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I saved you and rescued you from Egypt. I pulled you out of slavery. I did this because this is who you are, chapter 19. You are priests and kings. So therefore, because of that, live this way. Live in light of who you are. Live in light of who I have made you already. If that's the pattern of Exodus and Jesus is recapitulating, he is redoing the pattern here, then you get to these introductory statements. You should not read the Beatitudes as a list of commands. Oh, be a peacemaker. Be pure in heart. Be this and that. No, blessed are those kind of people. Blessing is coming to these kind of people that are struggling and hurting and poor in spirit and meek and mourning. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. He doesn't say thirst for righteousness. He says blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. The thought continues in the introduction. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And because of that, you should live out of that identity. In other words, this is where we began, isn't it? How does this happen? Knowing who you are will change everything about what you do. Every motivation flows out of who you are. Every action, every thought flows out of who you think you are. So who do you think you are? Jesus is saying that if you want to follow him, you can be made salt and light in the earth now, and it will give glory to God the Father. He will supernaturally make you these things. You do not white-knuckle fist it like, uh, I'm going to try really hard to be salty this week. Okay, I heard it. One takeaway, be salty. The one takeaway should be, you are salty. If by faith you have received what God has said about you, it's a matter of, do you believe that God is doing a work through his spirit all over the earth and he is wooing people to himself through his spirit that are saying, I want to follow this Jesus. Because of what he is doing in and through me. This last week, the Wednesday night Bible study was studying Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It is a very helpful parallel image. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for or because God is at work in you to his good pleasure. This is, a, this is a beautiful concept. Ready? Work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation because God is working in. You work out. Something is being deposited in, so you pull that out. That's how this works. 
How do we become salty and light? Because God, when we submit to what Jesus has said to us, it melts, it stirs our affections and our hearts. He's depositing something in as we look at his commands and his ways, and it's stirring us inside. There's something going on. And if you're a Christian, you know what this is talking about. If you don't know what this is talking about, you may not be a Christian, even if you call yourself a Christian. That when we see the glories of Jesus Christ, it should move us to compassion. When we see his sacrifice and his love, it should drop us to our knees. It should bring tears to our eyes sometimes, maybe a lot of times. So then God is doing something in. He is making you salty inside. And so what he's saying is, pull that out. Live out of that reality. Your problem is not that you need to do more. It's you need to just do what you already were made to be. So Embassy Church, let me encourage you in this way. I'm not asking you to be salty and be light. I want to remind you, we are, we are useful. God has been pouring in to us. And over the last four years, you all as members have been working this out in life and in community. Just before we met here, downstairs, people were gathered around tables talking to one another and saying, hey, how can I pray for you? Let me know your name and know who you are, and I want to know and get to know you and pray for you. Earlier this week, two times I had people tell me that this church, so one person said, I've been to a lot of different churches, and this was one of the more welcoming and inviting churches that I have ever visited. Another person who had only come to our church a couple times, I was playing basketball with this guy, and I said, hey, uh, you want to come to church again? And he's like, yeah, and then he's like, let me bring, let me bring this other guy, and so we brought him, and we started talking, like, hey, you want to come to church too? And so we started talking about coming to church this Sunday. And as we were talking, the one guy who's a brand new visitor, been only a couple times, he told the other guy, now if you come, they're going to start talking to you. They're going to, like, come up and get to know you and shake your hand. He's like, when I came, his people, like, were all, not, like, too much, but it was like, they were friendly. They were friendly. You are embassy salt and light. It's distinct, even from other churches. You are hospitable. A few months ago, I just sent out some emails and said, hey, anybody want to house some people in their home and have meals together? And we had several people say, yep, and signed up, and it got started just like that. Yep, I want to have people in my home, and I want to be hospitable, and I want people to have the freedom to come. And even if I don't know them well, strangers, just come in and have them in my home. We, we are salty and light. Do you know that when you give every week to embassy, those funds get set aside at different portions and amounts to help people who can't pay their bills, who can't pay for their groceries, who can't pay their rent. For those of you that missed out last Sunday as Gina shared her testimony and she started pointing around the room of names and ways over the last three, four years, specific individual members have helped her family get through a very challenging season. Was that not sweet? to hear that we are these things. We are. It's not a matter of you need to do these things. You are doing these things. We are salt. We are light. We are a distinct community that is not like the rest of the world where old and young and dark skin and light skin and rich and poor and people love and spend time together that don't normally spend time together in the world. 
people who like the White Sox, spend time with people who love the Cubs, and all kinds of barriers are being broken down because of Jesus. I can't even count how many times people have offered and actually provided free babysitting for me and my children. As my wife has been recovering from a severe back surgery, we have been getting a constant influx of text messages and meals that have been delicious, thank you. And all of this doesn't even go to the love that you have for your Savior Jesus as you speak of him on your lips and as you share the gospel. And as we look around this room, we know people that weren't a part of this community that are now a part of this community because we have loved them by telling them how good Jesus is. And they've been baptized. We, we are salty. We are light. So let's let our light shine. Let's just continue letting it come out as we see the glories of Jesus. It's not because I'm mostly a motivational speaker. It's not because we've got big plans. It's mostly because this church has been committed to say, we want to give you Jesus. And as we do so, it's going to stir something up and you all will start living differently out of that new identity in Jesus. So I would like to encourage you to consider how we could be even saltier than we already are, or another way, to mobilize us to greater good works of kingdom fruitfulness. In the last few weeks and months, I have had the privilege of serving in a lower income community housing project, just my, me and my kids and my family just doing this on our own, thinking I would like Embassy Church to become increasingly more engaged in the poor and underprivileged in our community. I think for the last several years, this has been a burden on my heart individually, and it's something I was like, look, I don't want to just wait around. I'm just going to start doing something on my own. And I was able to find some contacts with another pastor in the area, and he needed help with an after-school program in a lower-income community project. And so for the last several weeks, me and my children have been going for the <clears throat> Friday afternoons and visiting and spending time with and building relationships and trying to just love on people who are from all over the world. They are from every different ethnicity, race, and skin color. Many of them are refugees. Um, they're, they're kids from a variety of different ages. Uh, the families are in great need, and the church that's been helping them has been serving there for over two years now. And so a couple years ago, this church was hoping to get more involved in works of service like this. And there just was a lot of like, where is the place that we should serve? We had started in Arlington Heights, then we met, went to Mount Prospect, and then now we're in Palatine. Like, we don't have a building. Where is our community? We're all kind of from all over the place. And so one idea we had a couple years ago was to get involved with sending food packs through Children's Hunger Fund, which is an organization that provides food for free. We have to give zero dollars to them. If we sign up and say we will deliver the food, they will give us food packs to just hand out to people that need extra help with their groceries. And so we thought that would be a great way for us to build relationships. There's no necessarily geographical area we need to commit to. In fact, if you live in one part of the northwest suburbs and you live in another, because we are really pretty spread out as a church, you could do that in your community, just you individually. You could grab food packs and you could take them out once a week, maybe once a month, whatever that rhythm is, depending on the people that live around you that need help. And so that's the general idea, but we never got the traction for a variety of different reasons. And I think now that there's this relationship with this community in Palatine that I have been able to meet, and I asked the pastor and the organizers of the after-school program, 
do any of these families need extra help with their groceries? And he said, yes. I started to think, now we've got it. We've got a whole community of people. We've got an inn. We've got relationships. We've got people that we can start signing up to say, if you would like food. So that's the plan, is for us to go to the church and tell them, hey, uh, would you contact all the different parents and families that you've been able to serve over the last two years in this lower-income community project? Would you ask them if they need a little help? Maybe once a week or once a month or whatever that rhythm is, finding out how much food and help that they could be given. What I'd like to see is for you all to sign up to help with that project. And so there's going to be a sign-up sheet on that back table. And there is also those free books that I mentioned at the beginning of the service about your identity. So run back there. Grab a free book. Sign up. Now, signing up does not mean necessarily any commitment other than that you're interested and that you would like to know how you could serve either where you're at in your community. There's going to be need for people to pick up the food packs. There's going to be need for figuring out how we're going to store them. There's going to be need for organizing and different things. But there's also going to be a training on the first Saturday of May for you to get more information and to be trained about what we want this to look like and how these food packs can be a door into the lives of people and serve them and love them. And I think this would be an awesome way for us to apply this passage and for us to be even more distinct, even more salty, and even more full of light in a dark world where people are hurting and struggling. This is who followers of Jesus are. And this is who I believe you all are. You have already demonstrated it in a variety of ways that I've already shown. And I just want to encourage us, let's do this all the more. And we do this to the glory of the Father. Did you notice that as our passage ends? Giving glory to your Father who is in heaven. How is it that the world is going to glorify the Father by seeing us deliver food packs? It's because we're going to do it out of the motivation of a heart that is pure, that is in awe of the God who was everything for us. He was the ultimate salt of the earth and the ultimate light of the world. Have you thought about that yet in this message? Have you thought about how Jesus is the epitome and the embodiment of salt and light? Or maybe put it another way, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. There was a man named Jesus who lived a life full of saltiness and light unlike anyone else. But he was reviled and rejected. The world did not know what to do with him. And so on a hill, actually the very city on a hill that is being referred to here in Jerusalem, he was crucified for all the world to see. And was he not, as he hung on that cross, a beaming beacon of hope for every nation, every tongue, every people, drawing people to the worship of the glory of our God, the Father. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, is the cross not something which became outrageously visible in complete and utter darkness? Think back on that Good Friday. 12 p.m. noonday, the whole place around Jesus goes pitch black dark. A light, a beacon of light, a city on a hill. There he stands, there he hangs. Jesus is our salt and light. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want